welcome aboard the Battleship Retention. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Well, I'll tell you. Okay. I've been I've been a resident of the San Fernando Valley mm-hmm. for about eight years now. And it's it's all the and, better for it, David. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> no, I've come to really like I was one of those like valley haters, you know, basin dwelling valley haters. Sure. I've come to really uh, really fall in love with and appreciate the specific personality and characteristics of the San Fernando Valley. You know, today it's almost like, it's almost like the valley is another host uh-huh. of Battleship uh, Protection. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, today is a day, though, where there's a good argument for moving back into the basin. Boy. Because it is 115 degrees. <laughs> it's yeah. a mere 105 degrees on the other side of the hill. I know. It's they're wearing parkas walking up and down Santa Monica <laughs> yeah. Boulevard there. Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. Um, there is something to be said for it being a dry heat. Like I had to, so I'm, I'm teaching these days and I'm teaching on a college campus, though not a function of that college. Uh, and I have, I regularly have to like walk across yeah. campus. And even though I knew that it was as hot as it is, I know it sounds, of course it was oppressively hot, but if you had asked me how hot I thought it was, I probably would have said 95. Yeah, I would say that's the thing because usually it is more humid in the valley, but this is specific. This isn't a particularly humid. Right. I was talking with my wife, uh, my lovely wife, Natalie, uh, about, uh, it feels like Palm Springs outside, which is not bad. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, yes. I like going to Palm Springs. I do too. Yeah. Um, where it's also one hundred one hundred and five to one hundred and fifteen most of the time, but yeah. never, never humid. So I guess that is a small uh, blessing here yeah. that it's not humid. It definitely, you know, it, various places. So I've lived in places that can get extremely cold, and then I've gotten to I've lived in places that are just cold. Mm-hmm. You know. Like when I lived in Denver, I mean, obviously it could get very cold and there, and you get a lot of snow, but it, it, it did not get Minnesota cold, right? Uh, okay. Minnesota cold, which I haven't lived, but my, my wife, uh, my lovely wife, Jen, uh, is from there. And so when we would go there for Christmas and new years and stuff like that, you would set foot outside and you were literally walking into a wall of painful cold. And that is how I feel today. Yeah. Like I, I have central air in my house. It's mostly doing the job. Yeah. Um, feeling good. But like, and I was feeling pretty good. I took a little nap. Uh-huh. Uh, and then I stepped outside to let you in. I was like, Oh, and it was, it literally, it was just a wall of heat. Yeah. I don't know if I describe it as painful, but it's, but the word oppressive is what I tend to yeah. use for heat like this. It is horrendous. Um, Another thing, we have a, a thing to talk about before we get to the ads. Mm-hmm. But the other thing, I, I thought of you yesterday. Okay. Because you know what I did for the first time in close to a decade? Eat chicken strips? No, very close. Okay. I ate Denny's. Hey! What'd you, ha- what'd you have? <laughs> that's, that's another thing is it's been almost 10 years since I've eaten at a Denny's. It's been probably even longer since I've had anything but breakfast at sure. Denny's. I just got a burger and fries. They know what they're doing there. Yeah. I got to tell you. That was a, cause here's the, it's even funnier that I haven't had Denny's in so long because I live almost without exaggeration. I live a stone's throw from a Denny's <laughs> and I never, ever go. Is that the one you went to? Well, I did the, um, the, the thing where you order online and go pick up. Oh sure. So sure. I just picked it up and like I was gone from my yeah. house five minutes total. I was back in front of, in the air conditioning in front of my TV, watching a movie, eating a burger and fries within yeah. <laughs> under 10 minutes. Uh, I gotta tell you. It's a good. I just got the cheeseburger with grilled onions. 
Denny's, they're not a sponsor, but if they wanted to be, you got two dedicated hosts. Absolutely. Who will stand by Denny's product. I mean, it might be a chain and people might have an association with it because it's like 24 hours and, you know, think people think of like sleazy late night people. Um, I guess I'm one of those, but, uh, there's still a diner and there are things you can count on a diner when, you know, to be, but you know, being, so being from the St. Louis area when I was like not yet old enough to drink, but old enough to stay out late. Sure. Our hangout was Steak and Shake. Steak and Shake, yeah. Which now, you have a couple of them here. There's the one in Burbank, which I don't know if it's 24 hours. Okay. Um, there's one in Santa Monica that I don't know is 24 hours. Okay. There was one, this isn't nearby, but out in Victorville. It used to be the only full-size Steak and Shake that had the full menu. Right. And all of California was in Victorville. Yeah. And it closed at the beginning of 2018. You should look it up online. It's a weird, like, tax. Like, the, they, they just, like, the employees showed up one day and the doors were locked. And, like, no nice. one knew that it was that it was closed. I found out because going to the Victorville Steak and Shake was a Vegas tradition for me. And so I, I went, see. drove to Vegas with our friend Frank Fumai Rath McGrath. Mm-hmm. And, I, and he had never done the Steak and Shake. I was like, oh, we always do. You got to come with me. We'll drive. We'll have lunch at Steak and Shake on the way. And we walked up and it was, everything was all padlocked wow. uh so there's no full-size steak and shake left in california i've gotten off track denny's <laughs> and i don't have anything more to say about that i just wanted to give you the i was going to tell you off air and i was like you know what that's an on-air conversation that's right. i'm not uh, allowed a lot of on-air victories yeah uh, I and i feel like this is one of them <laughs> that uh yeah that burger at denny's yeah is really good they have i mean of course they have stuff that is like i've had their chicken strips they're clearly just from a bag frozen that sort of thing uh-huh. but i've had i d- decided to get risky one day and i had their pot roast and it was hmm. delicious like fall apart and all that uh good stuff i think my problem with denny's has always been as a breakfast guy at a diner that denny's doesn't have except for occasionally they'll have some sort of special limited special but they don't have biscuits and gravy as a permanent right. menu item right steak and shake does and they're good ihop does and they're terrible mm-hmm. but at least it's biscuits and gravy yeah uh denny's does not have it so i think that's always been kind of a hesitation for me with denny's is that i i want biscuits and gravy uh and they don't have it there is that that's not region specific though right like you could get biscuits and gravy at an ihop here it's not yeah, like yeah it's the one is the one on uh okay. sons of boulevard okay. uh, uh has it but um yeah ihop i don't know i went to ihop actually speaking of vegas my last yeah. trip home from vegas we stopped yeah at an ihop and i actually had pancakes which i mm-hmm. almost never do because yeah. i don't like pancakes but that's in the name right and uh yeah. what choice do you have they were good ihop anyway. i think has gotten worse ihop is like yeah. kmart Okay. Uh, I used to go to IHOP a fair amount, and I went recently because it's what was available. And I was like, "Wow, this first off, it's it's uh, fluorescent lighting is not helping me right now." Uh-huh. Uh, and suddenly, like Denny's just seemed like the height of class. Yeah, it's uh, nice in there. But um, but I have there's an IHOP. The one I went to is the one on the California Nevada border. Oh, okay. Uh, at so they have you know obviously border they, IHOPs always bring out the worst in people. <laughs> So Vegas is obviously the destination, mm. right? But um, Prim, Nevada, which is the town right on the border, mm-hmm. has three large casinos right there on the border for people either who can't wait to <laughs> Vegas or people who lost a bunch of money in Vegas and want to try and win it back yeah, before yeah. they get back into California. Um, and so we found that if we stay for breakfast, 
on a Sunday in Vegas, we mm-hmm. end up in terrible traffic. Sure. So our plan last time was get the fuck out of Vegas as soon as possible on a Sunday morning. Right. And then wait to have breakfast in Prim. It worked out. Oh. But we had to walk through a real, real trashy, like, do you remember Vegas Vacation, the, like, off strip casino they go yes. to where it's like how many fingers and yeah. like we had to go we had to walk through that kind of casino which was tempting to me to be like look how cheap the craps is yeah uh and then and then we had some hop. okay that's not what we're Th- talking there about. are amusing parts of vegas vacation uh, people see it as like one of the worst ones and sure enough it is but there are moments like that casino uh-huh. there's like what number am i thinking of <laughs> yeah. it's like three five and, and he just loses money immediately <laughs> yeah. um incidentally real quick uh there's a, a delightful video from years ago of our friend uh, Asterios Kokonos talking uh-huh. about Denny's uh-huh. uh, and talking specifically about their Hobbit coffee back when they uh, had their Hobbit menu. Um, I didn't realize there was a specific coffee. Well, it was called Bowman's Brew, but he called it Hobbit coffee, uh-huh. uh, which is a, a big part of his bit. But he would, he would, he went in and just, and said uh, something like, yes, I'd like a Hobbit coffee to go. And it's like, what to go? <laughs> You have somewhere to go? Why don't you go there? (laughs) Why are you here? Like, people just end up here. If you have somewhere to go, why are you at Denny's? (laughs) And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, made me chuckle. All right. Okay. So, something on my, on, on, on on our minds Mm -hmm. that I think is, we've been having fun, but, uh, (laughs) a serious topic. Yeah, Yeah, we do have fun. (laughs) But there's a serious topic that I feel like we're not... You and I, given who we are, aren't, aren't super well equipped to talk about it, but that's also kind of the point, I think, for me. It's never stopped us from having opinions before. <laughs> um, but, and now I've forgotten the name of the movie or whatever, but. Uh, yeah, I don't recall either. Scarlett Johansson is going to be starring in a real life, a biopic of a real life trans man. Mm-hmm. So she's going to be playing a transgender man. Yeah. And this has, uh, you know, as it did with. Um, the movie girl that premiered at Cannes this year or mm-hmm. the Matt Bomer movie that no one ever saw right. or, or, or Dallas Buyers club or, or transparent. This has caused uh, a number Trans of people. America. I guess it uh, didn't cause any trouble then. I don't think it, here's, that's an issue. Here's another thing. Okay. That this is why we should have someone who knows better. Sure. The trans America thing, which will come up in a bit, uh, because that wasn't Felicity Huffman playing a trans man, right? right? She was playing a trans woman. Okay. And I wonder, I don't know where that falls on the, like, you know, like in this new role mm-hmm. that Scarlett, Scarlett Johansson is playing. Obviously, yeah. the ideal for a lot of people, and I would say for me, is to have a trans man play a trans man. But okay. would, would having a cis man play that role be less offensive than a cis woman? I wonder. I would, I would love to hear. I, I hadn't really thought about that, but it kind of occurred to me when you brought up Transamerica. Uh, which I never saw, by the way. Here's here's part of my thought, as strange as it may sound, ba- on what based on what you just asked. I think it would be. I mean, obviously, there's there's the the emotional component of being trans, mm-hmm. but there is the physical component as well. And if you're somebody from a you know like. If you're somebody who you don't know what it's like to have the, for example, genitals of, of the opposite sex, uh, I feel like that can play a role. And just like, oh, I'll just uh, you know stuff something in my crotch and I'll get it, right? It's like, <laughs> no, I don't think you understand. Um, I do think that, uh, I, think, I think, yeah, I think it would be, I mean, I, I'm reluctant to say offensive or inoffensive. So you're saying it might be more offensive to have a cis man than a cis woman? 
Because a trans man is a man. Right. And so therefore being played by a man, I don't know, we're off in the deep end of yeah, yeah. like not knowing what the fuck we're talking well, about and, right and, now. And well, here's the thing. Okay, so I'm going to ask a series of questions and yes, I'm sure they'll be offensive simply because I don't know already. Right. But me, people you Yeah, you, preemptive mea culpa. Here. Yeah. You discover things by asking questions. You're not a monster simply by asking. I know that we all somehow just become aware of things the minute somebody says them. But uh, I have questions. Uh-huh. Here's my question. So, a tr- okay. A trans man, uh-huh. that, that term applies to a, let's say, biological woman. Someone assigned female at birth. Okay. I think it would be the... on her biology. Physical His biology. biology. See? Yeah. Right. yeah. Okay. You get, you get what I'm saying? Though. Yes. Okay. Her then, his then her biology. Um, but, uh, and then identifies as a man, regardless of whether there's, whether there's any surgery involved. Right. 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 Okay. Yeah. So a trans man is, you know, woman at birth and then maybe had surgery, maybe didn't. But right. now, but identifies Again, as a man. Assigned female at birth, I think the correct thing to say is that person was a man or a male from the beginning. But but at no point was a trans man female. Oh, okay. Do you I know see. what I mean? Yes, I see what you mean. Okay. I yes, okay, I get it now. <laughs> Sorry. It took me a moment because like a fucking baby doesn't know. And then I was like, okay, no, I get it now. It's a thing in <laughs> retrospect. Okay. Um, you know, like the kid isn't saying it. So you, but you yeah, said I don't know assigned, what assigned you realize by, because I, yeah, yeah, I never went through that. So, yeah. So, um, okay. So along those lines, if a cis woman, hang on, if a cis woman were going to play a trans woman, which is what happened in trans America, right? Right. Yes. I actually think I would prefer a cis man to play a trans woman. Well, that's what you would prefer. But here's the thing you asked about. You, as you mentioned, we're asking questions because we don't yeah. know. Part of that involves listening. Of course. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think that's the thing is to clueless, you know, or at least people, inexperienced people like us. Sure. It may, it does make that sort of sense. Mm-hmm. But when this many trans people are saying, no, this is a problem, mm-hmm. I think the smart thing to do <laughs> is to listen. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? And say, yes, this is a problem. Because I think, I think we, not having this experience, and um, I, don't, I don't think you and I, either you and I have any close personal friends who are trans. No, um, Jen I have, has... Uh, I have internet friends. In, in, in her family. Okay. Yeah. Um... I think to us it feels like, well, a straight person can play a gay person or a gay person can play play a straight person. But I think this is more akin to a white person playing a black person. Right. And I think that's something that is that that uh, it's taken maybe people like you and me a little longer to come around to. Mm -hmm. But hopefully uh, we'll start to you know, actually listen to the people who, the, the, the trans people who have, a, uh, who have had problems with this for a long time. Do you know what I mean? How long of a time? Uh, well, probably longer than we realize. Sure. sure. Um, I mean, I, 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 like I said, I mentioned those 
it feels like the out, the the outrage has gotten bigger each time. Like I I, I, I do right. feel like as trans visibility has become greater, trans people are saying like, well, why the fuck can't you catch up? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like why why can't uh, like okay, Jeffrey Tambor maybe there I heard a few things. Jared Leto, which one? Was, I can't even remember which one was first. Jared Leto was first. That was 2013. Okay. So that was when I first remember hearing, like, uh, you know, this is this is a problem uh, in terms of optics, in terms of yeah. like Jared Leto playing a woman mm-hmm. and then getting lots of awards for playing that woman sure. and accepting the awards as a her suit man if you remember how he looked during that awards he had like a long beard during that awards campaign like it's it adds to the public perception that trans people are just dressing up sure you know what i mean okay yes yes i think that's something that i started to hear then you hear a little more with jeff jeffrey uh uh, jeffrey tambor Mm -hmm. um a little bit with matt bomer but again I forget the name of that movie. I never saw it. No yeah. one I know saw it. Uh, and then it just happened again at Cannes with a movie, a movie that hasn't come out yet. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, which that one, I guess I'm a little sympathetic to because still, but it, not that here's the thing. I, you know, I'll mention girl is the name of that movie. Girl. Okay. Part of the argument I think on the director's part was that this is not just a, mo- a story about a trans girl. It's about a trans girl who's a ballet dancer. And so finding a child yeah. actor who can act and ballet yeah. dance. There's a lot of layers there. It's difficult enough to begin with if you're limiting yeah. yourself to trans people. And it's like, and so my first reaction is like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But then going back to what I said before, would we accept that excuse if you had a white child with makeup pretending to be a black child just because the white child could do ballet? It wouldn't be acceptable. Probably not. And, and so I think that's the thing we that's we need to start thinking of it like that mm-hmm. is is what I'm gathering from the conversation that I'm mostly just listening to okay. until, until now. I haven't said anything about it. So here's OK. Uh, during the uh, the Oscars so white campaign, uh, I got in a bit of hot water at school um, as I tended to do uh-huh. because you're a little shit disturber. Something like that. <laughs> um, but I wasn't doing it just for the sake of it. You know, I'm not, I'm not a punk. Um, but one thing that, that was said, you know, people were talking about Creed, which you still have not seen, correct? No, I never saw it's, it. It's marvelous. I know you're not a big fan of Black Panther. Don't let that throw you. Creed no, is marvelous. No, but I liked uh, Fruitvale Station. Yeah. I thought that was good. Um, but uh, anyway, Creed, marvelous. If... Ryan Coogler had been nominated for best director for Creed. I would have been fine with it. I think it's a Mm -hmm. really, there's some really great virtuosic stuff going on there. Um, if Michael B. Jordan had been nominated for actor. All right, there we go. Uh, I'm fine with that as well. Uh, the film received a single nomination, which was supporting actor for Mm -hmm. Sylvester Stallone. And a lot of, he lost, which he lost to Mike, to Mark, uh, Mark Ryland. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I still, I, even though I saw Bridges Spies and didn't see Creed, I still wish Stallone had won that. And if you, and it would have been a better saw, story. If you saw Creed, you'd be like, "This is a genuinely great performance." Um, yeah, Bridges Spies, I don't even like that much. There's a lot I, I like about, about it. it. Yeah, I li- there's a lot I like about it. His performance actually isn't one of the things that I like that I like a lot about it. It's a fine performance, mm-hmm. but again, like to me, anybody who sees Bridge of Spies and Creed, like there's, there's no comparison yeah, at all crazy but anyway um maybe all you the know academy what? voters watched uh, wolf hall 
which you should still watch. True, yes. Mark yes. Rylance is great in that. And then, uh, you know, and then uh, Get Carter was playing on... Uh, <laughs> on Cinemax. <laughs> on Cin- yeah. That's perfect. Of course it would yeah. play on Cinemax. Um, anyway, so... Uh, but people in, in my class were, you know, they were outraged, they were talking about it, and I just like... And they said, like, oh, the Academy is so racist and all that. And I said, like, is it racist? Like, don't get me wrong. I'm happy to say, I'm happy to put anything down to typical Academy Hollywood bullshit. But I don't think it's racist bullshit. Because what they, what people in my class said was like, like, well, who got the nomination? The white guy. It's like, who is the white guy here? Is it the guy who played Rocky Balboa? The guy who who wrote Rocky Balboa, the guy who's willing to take a supporting role and hand the reins over to somebody else, and by the way, also gave an amazing performance and likely will never be nominated again. Oh, I see. Yeah, like there's like like we do need to look at context. All of the, uh, putting the the quality of the performance aside, this is that standard Hollywood stuff. It's Ryan Coogler is not a proven director yet, neither and Michael B. Jordan. He'll get his eventually, but hey, here's Sylvester Stallone. Look at what he's doing here. Let's award him. Like that's standard Academy stuff. I, and I think this is, and I'll I'll wait in a minute for you mm. to tie this back to what okay. we were talking about before. But I think that goes along with something we've said about the Bechdel test, that the Bechdel test is very revealing when you look at, say, a year's worth of cinema. Mm-hmm. On a case-by-case basis, it's not really a marker of quality of a movie. Do you know what right. I mean? And so, yes, the Academy, uh, I think, has... Uh, and had something to answer for and seems to be answering for it in mm-hmm. in terms of nominating white uh, uh, filmmakers and actors right. over black filmmakers and actors. But to point at one specific example is um, right. kind of... Which was not uh, my... Kind of obtuse to right. say, like... But it was not my example. That was the other thing. Like Uh it was that, that and straight out of Compton. Those were the movies that were pointed at that year. And to me, it's just like, I mean, straight out of Compton's good. It's not that good. (laughs) Racist. Um, (laughs) But, and that's the thing is people, people like, they're like, why didn't, why wasn't anybody nominated for straight out of Compton? Who would you nominate? Jason Mitchell, probably. Okay. But it's ensemble. And to pick one over another, it's hard to know exactly which one you would go with. And nobody knew, and none of the Academy, again, standard Academy stuff. These are younger guys and they don't know who they are. And so like it did make a ton of money. So I could, I could see it having gotten nominated for picture, which it wasn't, but, um, but I can see, and that's something that's going to change with the way the Academy has changed their outlook by being, uh, younger, Young. more diverse people yeah. might know who Jason Mitchell is. Right. I mean, I barely know who he is. Um, you've, I mean, you've since seen him in Mudbound, right? I've not, I didn't see Mudbound. Okay. Um, well, he's in the new Superfly remake. Oh, well, he's good right. in that too. I, I do want to see it. Yeah, it's good. Um, especially because I was as I was lecturing my students, I was talking a lot about like seventies and talking about like black exploitation. I was like, man, I used to see all these movies, and I, I want, I got to get back into that. <laughs> um, anyway, so my point is. I don't I don't necessarily like to use Hollywood bullshit as an excuse, but I'm I'm more, for lack of a better term, understanding of that than and maybe maybe there's a a root cause of like racism or maybe an indirect unconscious racism or prejudice or just like I know what I know and that's all that matters. I'm not that interested in what I don't know. 
And so, of course, dealing with trans actors, well, that's kind of for for any number of casting directors, that's a new thing. And what I would what I would say is, if I were a casting director or something like that, if someone said we should cast a trans actor, my first thought was like, okay, who? Yeah, but there are there are plenty they're, of them out there. They're out there. And it requires a risk to be taken, and I do think that where the, where we where the where the choice can be made is that usually movies featuring trans characters are not big blockbusters anyway. So you could, right? I think yeah. you can you can get away with taking a risk. Yeah, you know. And again, to go back to like all the arguments about like, well, would this Scarlett Johansson movie get made without Scarlett Johansson in it? All of that, all that argument pales in comparison to what well, we figured out how to stop putting white actors in blackface mm. or yellow face or whatever. Yeah. Right. We did that. And if that's, Although, if that's the comparison, yeah. which I'm starting to, it's starting to dawn on me that that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sorry, I'm slow to the, uh, <laughs> to get to the party here. Like that kind of trumps a lot of these arguments. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Although admittedly Hollywood was a lot more entertaining when white actors were in yellow face. Is that true? <laughs> I mean, absolutely. You know, just Mickey look Rooney. at Mickey Rooney. Yeah. <laughs> I'm joking. Of course, when I say that, please. Yeah. I think um, everyone knows you're joking, but, uh, but yeah. And so I do think, and you know what? I will be honest. I don't like to make the slippery slope argument. And I also don't necessarily think that this is, this could be seen as a bad thing, but I do think, Eventually, I think people will say, why would you ever cast a straight actor as a gay character? Do you? Because I, I think, I, I mean, maybe you're right, but I do feel like that's, I do feel like gender, I'm starting to realize that gender is more of an identity and sexuality is something that's a little more fluid, mm-hmm. you know? And maybe as, like, would, I, I think uh, what you're saying is, why would you cast a straight actor as a gay actor? I think what's, what's equally if not more likely is that whatever a century or two down the line i mean people won't be around anymore sure but let's say they let's pretend people yeah. won't have burned alive thanks to global warming in two centuries now now it'll be <laughs> nuclear warfare could also <laughs> that, that happen could, that, that could be our our mercy yeah um no um i wonder if the difference between straight and gay will become less uh less hard less less strictly yeah. defined yeah that's you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, it's possible. Um, and what I, what's interesting because I've read articles about this, and I've I've had people say that, and you know, actually, I've had people say both. I've had people say that they they understand, and they're actually more inclined to buy a gay actor playing a straight character. Uh, not not about like buying as, as far as believability, but like on an ideological idea, uh, level because chances are if you're gay at like for a while you probably had to pretend to be right. straight or you thought you were whatever it is and also this like and so you have experience with that and also you probably have more of an idea of what it's like to be straight because sure. most of the culture and art yeah. and just experience you've consumed over your life has been about and by straight people david if i had to play gay I've seen enough Will and Grace to know how to play it. All right. You're either a Jack or a Will. Those are the two types of gay men. Oh, that's weird. I'm misinterpreting. Uh, I'm just going Megan Mullally. Um, but yeah. And so, so I do think that there's, uh, 
but I think people will be frustrated at the idea of a straight actor. Fluidity aside, I think people would be frustrated at the idea of a straight actor playing a gay character because there's there's such a premium put, and I'm not sure if I'm 100% on board with this in a larger sense, there's such a premium put on experience. And it's like, well, you haven't experienced this, so how on earth can you understand it? In my opinion, undercutting the nature of acting, but uh, yeah. but I do think no. that people. Whereas I think a gay person can it can be argued that they do have experience, quote unquote, being straight uh, because they yeah. were expected to be for so long again, in their lives. I mean, I'm not even really hearing this argument. Like, I'm not hearing. Oh, really? Gay people get mad that I don't know. Uh, I'm trying to think of a major like straight actor who's played gay recently. Uh, I guess it, I guess it hasn't happened. Kate Blanchett. I mean, like, I guess, is anyone mad that Kate Blanchett is? I mean, Nick Robinson in uh, Love Simon. Uh, um, okay, he yeah. is, uh, to my knowledge, a straight actor. Yeah, so I, I think I, I think that's the thing is being cis. We tend to equate the one thing. Mm-hmm. We tend to equate cis playing trans more to straight playing gay when it should be like I've said before, like I, like I keep saying it should be more akin to a white person playing a black person. That's how we need to like maybe train ourselves to think mm-hmm. about it. Um, anyway, uh, I want to go ahead. You had something to say about that? Uh, cause I'll keep talking. Otherwise I have more, uh, more to address. Uh, I will not say what I'm thinking so we can move on. Okay. Um, the other thing, uh, that I think set a lot of people off is, did you see not Scarlett Johansson's Scarjo? Uh, yeah, not her response, but her, her reps response to the controversy. Really? Yeah. Uh, which she, she, I don't as as of, I don't know. I haven't really been on Twitter today. Um, but as far as I know, she hasn't addressed this, mm-hmm. but her rep said, uh, well, why don't you go ask the reps for Jared Leto and Jeffrey Tambor oh, and Felicity Hoffman? That. Yes. And it's like, man, way to miss the point entirely. The point is like the fact that those three like performances were awarded for this is not, is not making your point. It's I the opposite think, of making your point. I cannot think of a more Hollywood response <laughs> yeah, than yeah. like, uh, check out those awards over there. <laughs> yeah. Good sir. <laughs> Or madam, whatever you are. Like, I, I picture that guy, and he's uh, smoking a cigar. Yeah. Um, Jerry Little may not have the hardware to play a woman, <laughs> but he's got the hardware to back it up. Right? Oh, I like this guy. I, it's, it's almost disturbing how quickly you figured that out. Like, you, know, you could be this character really easily. All right. All right. Yeah. Write me a role. I'll, I'll, okay. I'll be in it. All right. We could have... Who's the character that uh, that I that I do that you like? Oh, it's the guy who's figured things out that everybody else already knows, uh-huh. but he really thinks he's on something. <laughs> you know what? It's that guy. So I could be that guy. Let's let's go ahead and say he's a director, and then okay. you be the the studio guy. We'll, we'll I'll figure something out. Oh, this is a good sketch. Um, anyway, okay, all right. Um, let's pay some bills. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a handpicked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. 
Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $8.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently available on Mubi, David, it was just a matter of time based on the last few weeks, uh, is Charles Crichton's The Lavender Hill Mob, a comic heist movie starring Alec Guinness and Stanley Holloway. Have you seen Lavender Hill Mob? I've never seen it, actually. It is delightful. I know Um, you're a fan. I am. I am, and of those uh, Ealing comedies with Alec Guinness, um, this is probably the best. Either this or Kind Hearts and Coronets, but they're so very different. Uh, in this, Alec Guinness, in an Oscar-nominated uh, performance, um, just plays like the kind of the goofy. He's just kind of a nerd who figured out how he could steal a bunch of gold. And so he's like, all right, I guess I should figure out how to make this happen. And so he just assembles a team. Uh, but he is still, he's not, he's not Danny Ocean. He's not the <laughs> charismatic leader of this group of, uh, of uh, nerdy wells. He is this nerdy guy that people, they believe his plan. They're on, they're, they're, they have faith in his plan, but he's just silly. Um, and it's a great performance, but, uh, but yeah. And then, uh, and it was, and it won best screenplay. And it's just a. So, as I was saying, yeah, uh, Alec Guinness plays one character in this, the lead character, and then he plays eight supporting characters in Kind Hearts and Cornex. Not to imply that it's all about Alec Guinness, but a lot of these movies, when they're released on DVD, like it was put out as like, these are the best Ealing comedies because you got to see a a huge range of uh, Alec Guinness. And this indeed is a wonderful performance by him, but also Stanley Holloway uh, as his kind of right-hand man who is, in many ways, he's not exactly Robert Morley, who is the most British of men, but he's not far off either. Um, You know, bowler hat and all that. (laughs) Uh, I don't remember if he has an umbrella, but I feel like he he should. Um, And then it's worth noting that the director, Charles Crichton, do you you recognize that name? Uh, Hero of Jurassic Park. (laughs) You deserve a punch in the face. What I was going to say, uh, no, he, like, 30 years after this, he directed A Fish Called Wanda. Oh. So, I mean, in that point, he, yeah. was, he was, like, in his 80s or something like that. Uh, but clearly, they, when they were putting together Fish Called Wanda, they thought, like, we need someone who has experience with this type of, like, comedic heist mm-hmm. picture. Uh, and so it's, it's really a, a marvelous film with... I always... I have a, res- a respect. Anytime I see like a heist movie or a con movie, I always respect a really good plan. Uh-huh. Uh, you and I are not big. Well, fans. you love it when it comes together. <laughs> no, I like the individual parts. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes, I do. I do like it. You son of a bitch. Um, that's from the A Team, yeah, which is not much A-team. of a which is not much of a con show. Uh, they no, more but it's just, got plans coming together. <laughs> yes, that's true. The plan is usually you're going to dress up, and then we're just going to blow <laughs> everything up. Um, and that guy does not want to get on the plane. Oh, don't get him on a plane. Um, if you f- if you are regularly <laughs> uh, like knocked out, if you are drugged by your friends all the time, <laughs> like all the time. <laughs> How would you feel about that? Uh, I guess even pretty if relaxed. A, fair enough. Even if there's a if there's a practical purpose, I feel yeah. like, guys, you know, I don't like to fly. This is getting ridiculous. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, uh, you and I are not big fans of intolerable intolerable cruelty. Right. 
but there is a con element to the film mm-hmm. and the con element is really good and I really like it. Uh, and so, yeah, the plan in Lavender Hill Mob is a lot of fun. Um, so check it out. It's one of uh, 30 movies playing on Mubi right now. And there's a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now. Or go to BattleshipPretension.com and click on the Mubi ad on the left-hand side. And I want to tell you about TweakedAudio.com, which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. Uh, I've been listening to um all all five of the uh kanye west produced uh mini albums that have come out so far this year uh his own the one he did with kid cootie okay the nas one what counts as the a mini album? T one and the tana taylor one okay uh they're both under t- both all five of them are under 25 minutes long so okay. they're really eps okay. but i think they're being talked about as albums because apparently it's just like a gaming the spotify thing if you mm-hmm. if you list something on spotify as an album as opposed to an ep it gets playlisted more and gets like it, it's just a, it's just like it's an seo type of thing to call it an album instead of an ep uh essentially hmm. uh i've been listening to all five of them i think the tana taylor one is is awesome uh and it has i know like Kanye West is, uh, we're all mad at him and I understand why for, uh, certain things recently, but, uh, he's a good producer. And then Tiana Taylor one has one of my favorite things, which is a song starts to fade out. And then you hear Kanye go, no fade outs. And the song stops. (laughs) (laughs) I I listen to it a bunch of times and I laugh every time. Uh, and it sounds great. I can hear Kanye, uh, crystal clear on my tweaked audio.com earbuds that are available at a low, low price at tweaked audio, But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout in, uh, 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 you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, Accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. So, listeners, glance down at your Zunes, at your iPods, at your MP3, generic MP3 players that you wanted to raffle. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe you're listening on your phone or computer somehow. Sure. Uh, look at the number of the episode. All of our episodes have numbers except for the movie journals, but our, our, our main Canon episodes have numbers. This one is episode 590, which is divisible by 10, mm-hmm. but not divisible by 50. Mm-hmm. And therefore this is a profile episode. Indeed. This is what we do every 10 episodes, except for five of those <laughs> or every fifth, every fifth one of those, every 10 episodes, uh, oh. we profile someone, uh, we've taken lately to it being about, uh, 
uh, people who have died recently, yeah. which I'm not against. I kind of think maybe that's what the profile, maybe this should become it's profile it, slash tribute episodes. It's what it used to be. Like when yeah. we, when we first started them, it was, it had to be people that had passed away so that we could yeah. talk about, but they weren't necessarily people who had passed away recently. That's right. what we're doing now. Right. Yes. Uh, which I'm not against. Um, which means episode six ten will be either, Margot Kidder or Robbie Mueller? Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, oh Robbie Mueller. I was yeah. actually I was is bummed it, about it that. Maybe Mueller. Um, anyway, Mueller is what I've is how I heard Jim Jarmusch. Okay, so but the, and the the guy the Russia investigation guy is spelled Mueller but yeah. pronounced Mueller, which yeah. throws me off. It's very frustrating. Um, I feel anyway. like you can't trust that. <laughs> anyway, but the uh, dearly departed, recently departed uh, filmmaker we're talking about this week is the great Milos Forman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was very excited because I've always been a Milos Forman fan, um, and this gave me an excuse um, to catch up on some stuff of his that I hadn't seen. Although there's some, there's some big ones that I still haven't seen because uh, Ragtime is weirdly hard to unless I want to pay like full price to own it digitally. Yeah, uh, hard to come by Ragtime, so I still haven't seen Ragtime. I feel like. I guess you would be the one to talk to about this because you have more general knowledge about licensing, right? Probably. Am I I speaking vague enough? Uh, Yeah, no, I do have some (laughs) rights and stuff like that. And so, like, my first thought when I hear something like that is, like, why would you not make something as available, uh, certainly digitally, why would you not make something as available as possible? Like, do you, you just have it. It's right there. And do you, are you just trying to make people forget this? Yeah, I don't know. At this point, it is weird sometimes, unless unless the rights are tied up. Do you know what I mean? Especially, right. I mean, and when you've got a European director like this, you might have had multinational financing, which means the rights yeah. might be different in different countries. You know what I mean? So that that could be yeah. part of it. And it, but it's and that's the thing is like in my mind, it's like well, I mean, you already put it out there to buy, but it's like, but I'm sure purchase rights are those different are different. Rental, yeah, yeah, which is. You know, crazy, but those are different rights. Yeah. I remember being a fan of of Harold Lloyd. Something that I re- that I um, <clears throat> realized many years ago is that, like, when it came to v- like VHS, um, you could get Chaplin stuff, you could get Keaton stuff, but Harold Lloyd's family. I don't know what was going on because it, it they just were not mm-hmm. releasing the rights to his stuff. I don't know if they were holding out for more money or whatever, but what they eventually did was like, congratulations. Uh, people now think there were two really great silent comedians. Now, of course there were several more, but those were yeah. the big three and Lloyd was the one that outsold everybody else. Um, and so it's like, so you have, you've held on to this long enough that he is no longer really in demand except by like hardcore right. fans. And then finally they like got their act together and released the rights, uh, on DVD and then finally gave it to Criterion. Um, but yeah, it's, it's something that I, that I think about anytime a movie that is, it's like, it's Milos Forman. It's yeah. a film I've, I've heard of. Um, so like, why wouldn't they want to yeah. get it out there and as now, much as possible? I'm actually trying to think if, purchase streaming and rental streaming are separate rights because they might be. But what I, what I think of as separate is what's called SVOD versus TVOD. Okay. So 
Netflix, or let's let's even do within Amazon. Okay. Amazon Prime is SVOD. Okay. It's subscription video on demand. Okay. You subscribe to Amazon Prime, and therefore you have access right. to all of the Amazon Prime stuff. But the other stuff that's on Amazon Instant Video, which I don't think is what they're calling them, they're calling themselves Amazon Video, whatever they're calling themselves now, mm-hmm. is TVOD, transactional video on demand. So even okay. though you have Amazon, you still have to pay. Right for that specific movie. So those are separate rights. I'm actually not sure if, because renting ragtime on Amazon or buying ragtime on Amazon would both be transactional, transactional video on demand. Hmm. So I'm not sure if they are separate rights, but they probably are. There's probably something that I'm not, that I don't even understand. It's really complex. Anyway, so the, that's the whole upshot of this entire episode. We're 42 minutes into this episode. (laughs) I haven't seen ragtime. It's the point of the entire episode. We'll get you next time. Um, (laughs) So let's really let, let's start first, I guess, with our history with Milos Forman, because okay. I think I'll uh, you know as we go through, I'll see if I'm wrong. But I think the first Milos Forman movie I ever saw was probably The People versus Larry Flynn. Really? Because I didn't come to Cuckoo's Nest or Amadeus until late. Amadeus almost embarrassingly late, although now I love it. Yeah. Um, which I feel like are kind of his. His, his were, were his big ones going into the 90s oh right? certainly yes yes uh and then larry flint and man on the moon were the ones that i that i that i saw you know pretty much back to back pretty around the same time because mm. i probably saw larry flint i know I, I know i saw larry flint on video because i watched it with my dad and it was really uncomfortable what an odd choice it, I, I don't think i really even understood what the movie was going to be because yeah. I, my parents were like very strict about R-rated movies, mm-hmm. but at, at a certain point they realized, like, when I was about 15, they were like, okay, yeah. you get it, you can watch R-rated movies now, and I was like, okay, floodgates are open. <laughs> I'm gonna borrow my friend's copy, a VHS copy of People vs. Larry Flint, and, uh, oh, hey, my dad's home. Hey, Dad, you wanna watch this movie I borrowed from Jamie? And, uh, we watched People vs. Larry Flint together. I'm fascinated that uh, Jamie owns People vs. Larry Flint oh, at yeah. that age. Oh, yeah, she was, uh, she still is, uh, uh, firebrand. Indeed. Um, uh, and then, of course, Man on the Moon. I saw would would have been the first one I saw in the theater. Indeed, yes. Um, and honestly, probably the only Milos Forman film I've seen in the theater. Yeah, that's uh, definitely true for me. Because I don't um, think I missed. A ch- I mean, I know a lot of people. Like the Cinematheque recently has been showing a lot of Milos Forman since he passed away, and I yeah. have missed every everyone. I could have gone to Larry Flint Theater, and I was just tired. Uh, and also it's not my favorite. So it was the one I, what I would, right. if I could have made it to the cuckoo's nest one, that would have been great. Uh, yeah. I wasn't or eager or to Amadeus like yeah. that. I've not seen on the big screen. I think it would really benefit. Um, yeah, my, my first thing was, was, uh, cuckoo's nest. It took me a while to get to, uh, Amadeus, but because one flew the cuckoo's nest is one of the only films to win the big five Oscars, uh, oh, picture, right. director, actor, actress, screenplay. Um, it was a priority for me because, you know, when you're young, you just kind of, whether it be a list or whatever, you just look for something that says, all right, just start here. And so I was like, all right, best pictures. I'll start watching those. Um, and then that one stood out because it was one of three movies, uh, even to date to, uh, have won those. So I watched that and I was a fan of Nicholson. So I watched that and I think honestly, I was a little bit too young to really appreciate it. Um, I still liked it a lot. In fact, I think I loved it. Um, but I think I loved it for just kind of for stupid high school reasons. I'm just like, yeah, that, 
that Randall McMurphy, he's got it figured out. It's like, well, <laughs> maybe not. But you know what? I mean, we'll get into uh, we'll get into unifying themes, and also we'll get into some of the faults, maybe, sure. of uh, of Milos Forman and. Um, you, young you might not have been entirely I still love Cuckoo's Nest yeah. but I think you see some impulses in identifying with Randall McMurphy mm-hmm. that then you will you will then see become detriments maybe in Larry Flint and Man on the Moon perhaps uh, that is probably true and and yeah as ta- speaking of unifying themes so the only four movies of his that I have seen are those four okay. um, which I feel bad about but uh looking at his filmography i realized like well there aren't that many more actually he uh he didn't put out as many movies as i thought he would have no but there's some great ones that you should definitely check out undoubtedly um um but so as i was preparing for this episode and i was just writing down like all the movies that he had made i realized that even the ones i had not seen but knew about i realized like i think i thought this guy was kind of a journeyman i'm incorrect yeah no there's a clear through line there's a clear i mean it's so obvious when you actually look at them all together and the and one thing and i was like oh a lot of these are based on true stories and i thought like well uh, uh, cuckoo's that's kind of an outlier what what am i talking about no it isn't not thematically yeah um and, and so, a lot of yeah. these early ones well you know what let's start with the first one i've seen because i haven't seen black peter which i think okay. was the one that made his name but the first one i've seen is 1965's uh loves of a blonde or the loves of a blonde. I feel like I can I can never. Okay. Different sources are different on whether or not there's an article. To, to, a type. loves of a blonde. Uh, that's what. So it is. loves of a blonde, which is apparently it's not based on a true story the way a movie is, but apparently it was inspired by uh, Milos Forman picked up a hitchhiker, a young woman in Prague, and uh, learned her story, which is that she was from a small town. She'd met. Um, I don't know if it was a musician in real life. It's a mu- musician musician in the movie that she'd like fallen in love with and he'd told her all these things about oh like you know uh we could have a great life in Prague or whatever mm-hmm. uh turns out he was just wooing her or whatever she ran away from home came to Prague to find him and find oh he's a married man with kids and had mm-hmm. no intention of ever uh having a life with me and now yeah. I'm stranded in Prague um you saw this fairly so, recently right uh, no I uh, I mean within the last 10 years I guess huh um For some we talked I've... about it recently oh maybe that was we it, were talking yeah. about uh, in terms of the uh, recent Jim McKay movie on the seventh day, we were talking about using non-professional actors. Okay, yes, and I that talked was about it. Loves of a Blonde extensively uh, because then Milos Forman then wrote this this story um, about a small town where there's a uh, in the six it's set in, you know in the then present day and there's a factory. Most of the young men in the town have been conscripted into the army mm-hmm. um, and, and, and sent to the front lines. And so the factory is almost entirely staffed by young women and morale is low because there are no men in the town. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so the factory, uh, we are pretty great. <laughs> the factory talks to the military and says, Hey, can you like, maybe we'll, we'll do a dance, a social send, mm-hmm. you know, a platoon of military men and the military ends up sending, uh, a, a a, a regiment of mostly middle-aged, mostly married guys <laughs> who either aren't interested or are interested and shouldn't be. Yes. Yes. Uh, and so our, but then there's a musician who plays the dance who comes from Prague and our protagonist, uh, has a, uh, wonderful night, uh, with this musician, mm-hmm. you know, she shuns the military men and, uh, goes off with this musician and then, um, yeah, goes to Prague and gets her heartbroken essentially. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, it's a it's a great movie. But I think we're we're seeing what we'll see throughout, which is that Milos Forman tends to identify with youthful rebels mm-hmm. and tends to have very little respect for institutions and tradition uh, to the point of mocking them. Uh, yes. And I think that's that's definitely what we see with the with the military and with the the the, the rules of the the factory yeah. and all this and that that's going to be a very strong through line is that he uh is almost just derisively dismissive of of institutions. However, to the degree that it can be seen as adversarial as it as it is in some of these the institutions win. Like that's the other thing. In some of these cases, yeah. Or, or if the if the institutions don't actively win, then the free spirit loses. I, I, for la- or because in this case, it's she f- finds this guy. She's like super into him. They have a connection, only to find that oh, he's actually not that different than these married military guys. Right, yeah, and so. And if you look at, you know, again, just the films that I've seen, but you look at them over and over again, and either the establishment crushes the free spirit or the free spirit flames out, um, you know, almost a too, too pure for this world kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, um, that'll definitely so be a thing. I, I think, again, of the films that I've seen, I think the one exception to that is People versus Larry Flynn, where he still stays very much as he is, but... Um, but aside from that, like I think that's the common thread. That's a, that's a good point. That does seem to be the case here. Um, the the next movie of his I've seen, uh, the Fireman's Ball, uh, which is even more of a comedy. It's basically the Fireman's Ball is uh, imagine that one long party sequence from Loves of the Land, where it's all the middle aged men and all the young women, mm-hmm. and that's the entire premise of the Fireman's Ball. In that, that it's just like these lecherous uh, town sort of uh, you know pillars of the mm-hmm. town uh, getting drunk and trying to get no- girls naked the entire. <laughs> that's mostly what the movie's about. Uh, it's been even longer since I've seen this, so I don't have that much many insights. But it does seem to be uh, much along the same lines. Uh, the difference between one of the main differences between Fireman's Ball and Loves of Blonde is that Fireman's Ball is in color, mm-hmm. uh, which I think he would then stay in color for the rest of his career. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, Fireman's Ball is a very, very fun movie um, about uh, some. That I honestly would probably have. It would probably be less fun. I, I wonder watching it now in the in the Me Too uh, world. You know, sure. uh, being like, oh, these crazy old men. And it's yeah. like no, but it's, I, it's condemning of them, right? Uh, like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. that's but it is a comedy, so it's a. It's sure. like a I think it would be seen as a darker comedy now right. than maybe I, I saw it as ten years ago. <laughs> but yeah, it is still condemning of them no matter what. Okay. Well, that's something. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you think it would, do you think people would find it funny anymore? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, probably. Okay. Um, it's very, you know, a big, uh, raucous, uh, nice. movie, um, ends up with, yeah. Furniture getting tossed out into the lawn and all kinds of oh my crazy gosh. stuff. Yeah. All right. Um, 
Let's move on to another one that I only recently watched in preparation for this uh, episode that I didn't even know about, mm-hmm. uh, but it's on. It's available. Um, uh, sorry to our sponsor. It's available on Filmstruck. <laughs> um, it's a 1973 documentary documentary called Visions of Eight, okay. which is uh, it was shot um, at the 1972 Munich Olympics. Oh, it is eight short documentaries by eight different filmmakers, each from different countries. Mm-hmm. Um, Arthur Penn is the American. Uh, John Schlesinger is the uh, the Brit. Uh, Milos Forman is obviously uh, from, I guess, then Czechoslovakia. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me see if there's anyone else that. Uh, Kan Ichikawa is the uh, Japanese uh, director, um, and yeah, you've got uh, a, a, a bunch of them, and it's it's really really worth watching. It's yeah. very cool, um, and it's very surprising about uh, that the the thing that most of us think of when we think of the 1972 Olympics is barely mentioned, I think because hmm. it wasn't really affecting them while they were filming. You sure, know what I mean? Sure. So it's in the, the narration at the beginning of course mentions it. Mm-hmm. And then like the only time it ever comes up is in the, the British one. Uh, the marathon runner mentions that his race got pushed back a day right. because of, uh, what happened to them. It's just like, I, uh, uh-huh. it's like the only, the only, uh, reference to it. Um, but you've got Arthur Penn does the uh, uh, pole vault, which is re- very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them do, like uh, Mai Zetterling, who is a Swedish director, does, like, we'll pick, like I said, Arthur Penn does the pole vault. She does, like, the uh, deadlift or, like, heavy, mm-hmm. like, lip, and does, like, you know, you see a number of different, over the course of the Olympics, you see a number of different competitions. Connie Jikawa does one race with, like, 30 something cameras. Oh. So his entire, like, 10 minute thing is just seeing a like 50 yard dash something that takes less than a minute yeah from every possible angle focusing on different faces or different this does like, sound legs pretty great it's very cool and um but milos Forman's is i think not surprisingly given what we just talked about his is the most overtly comedic okay. of them because he does the he does the shot put and spends less time on the shot put than he does on the uh, ritual and ceremony of the Olympics. And so you've got like the guys coming out to measure the thing and they're all wearing their like official jackets and like, no. uh, it has kind of silly music to it. He does seem I was, to be, I, I feel like I can picture a tuba somewhere <laughs> yeah, in here. Yeah. He does seem to be kind of poking fun at the, at the pomp and circumstance of the Olympics. Well, that speaks to the institution. Thing, yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and that even it's even institutions that people, I guess that's the nature of an institution is that people have faith in it, mm-hmm. but this is one where it's supposed to bring out the best in everybody yeah. and people really believe in this one. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, still pretty bureaucratic though. And also it's the shot put, which has no practical. <laughs> like, yeah. I always wonder about yeah. like people who like, there's no professional shot put league. Like, right. What are these people doing for the, you know, three years and 50 weeks in between Olympics. You know what I mean? They're just going back to their lives, right? But they must be practicing to be shot put throwers. Yeah. It has so little practical purpose, uh, or practical application that when you think about it, how many people throw anything from their neck? <laughs> yeah. Like you can't even take that particular, uh, you can't even use the muscle memory from it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, yeah. That sounds so, great. Yeah, what's that, what's that called again? Visions of eight. All right. 
definitely worthwhile. All right, so the next one on the list is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. All right. Uh, so I've been talking enough. What okay. do you have to say about this? Uh, I haven't I re- seen it in a long time. I rewatched it somewhat recently, actually. Um, and, you know, the, there are things that you come to appreciate more as you get older. Something that I, unless it was, unless it was you know, Tim Burton, I, when I was younger, didn't really care much about art direction or understand it. But now that I am older, okay. I can look at a movie like All the President's Men and realize that it's an absolute triumph of art direction. Um, sure, yeah. Same with a show like Roseanne. Like something that feels lived in, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and You're talking about original recipe Roseanne, not crazy racist new Roseanne. From what I understand, the art, the art direction in the new one, I mean, it's just oh, all, the, it's all, all these pictures of Trump, right? <laughs> um, I have to assume that's it. Uh, but... Uh, but yeah, and just and and if you do it right, it can seem you can have it seem completely mundane, but also reveal things about the the world. Like in Roseanne, one of the things they have sitting around is a big plastic Godzilla. <laughs> for some reason, it's not that big, but it's like that tall, and it's always just kind of sitting there. And it's just a little decoration they have. It's never, to my knowledge, addressed, mm-hmm. but it's just there. But it's there in the in the kind of way that I think a household would have something like that. Um, and so the art direction there, there's plenty of other things to talk about with, uh, one flew of the cuckoo's nest, but the art direction of the mental hospital, uh, is so perfect. And you mentioned him working in color. Of course he would, of course he would love working in color. Cause this is another opportunity for him to show, uh, to draw a contrast, mm-hmm. you know, in this, now, admittedly, it's not as though Jack Nicholson's character is in something notably different, but I think he does wear like a greenish shirt in an all white, in a completely white environment. Um, and everything about it is just drab and, and yet it still feels very lived in. It doesn't feel like, uh, you know, Hannibal Lecter's cell in Manhunter. It feels like this hospital has been around for a while um, maybe even a bit run down. Uh, and so I feel like he saw it as a challenge to create the most antiseptic and anti-inspiring locale. Mm-hmm. And then out of the, and then also obviously he's dealing with quite literally an, an institution, but, yeah. but the other patients have been institutionalized by which I mean, they know the routine. They know what's expected of them, and they're a part of it. And so, this may be more than any of his other films. You really only have one person who understand, who not so much understands, but who is who is in defiance of mm-hmm. his fellow patients, the employees, and the world at large. And so, I mean, when we when we look at who. Milos Forman is and the things that he seems to think about institutions and just the way things are and the way things are run. I think this is like that boiled down to its essence, which is what Cuckoo's Nest has always been. Um, And I think something that bothered me when I was younger is that is just how just how much the film is on the side of Randall McMurphy. And from what I understand, the original play is not that. Hmm. But Foreman, Foreman is that 
of course he's gonna re- he's going to yeah understand this guy and sympathize with him and maybe even elevate him higher than the character would require because McMurphy does need to be institutionalized he is a danger to the to society he like he is a free you know you can look at that objectively and say like he is a danger to society he needs to be removed and i think foreman would say yeah but maybe the issue is society maybe that maybe if more people were like this this wouldn't be such an issue maybe he wouldn't be such an outlier and people would be more comfortable with the idea of this guy being as strange as he is Mm -hmm. um and so uh and i think nicholson really does a a great job especially when he has little moments of realization there's a really marvelous moment when he realizes that everybody else has checked themselves in he's the only one there not by choice (laughs) um which i really like uh but yeah it definitely when we look at his larger filmography this fits in on every level maybe most especially thematically all right. Well, speaking of, um, well, wait a sec. Well, uh, what do you oh. what do you think of it? You know, just and like because... I said, it's been a long time, okay. but I think uh, I think I agree with um, with with what you're saying. I uh, uh, I do think. Um, I mean, we've we've addressed the comedy of his movies, but I don't think we've talked about how how many of his movies could actually be seen as comedies first. You know what I mean? That's true. They're yeah. not necessarily talked about like that because they seem like big important movies, yes. but he always seem to be approaching things with a, a willingness yeah. to, to be funny. Yeah. And, and not just Nicholson, but like so many of these other characters, uh-huh. including like Danny DeVito and Christopher Lloyd. Yeah. Um, I love when they're all on the boat and Danny DeVito or Dan, uh, Jack Nicholson is like introducing each of them as, yeah. as doctors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know what, here's what I'll say is that even though Foreman is undeniably on Nicholson's side, it is to his credit, I think that he cast Louise Fletcher and had her give the, she is the villain, Mm -hmm. but she gives a very human performance and one that I think is very relatable. And I think when it comes right down to it, any number of us would find her infinitely more empathetic than we would him. Um, because she's just trying to, you know, she's just trying to run things and trying to keep control. Yes. She probably is on a bit of a power trip as well. But I think she has subscribed to the power structure so much uh, and just the way things are so much that, yes, it has given her power. But I think also she's she's just part of it. She's a symbol of the system, but she's just she's bought into it just as much as anybody else. And so but I think Louise Fletcher uh, turns in a really great performance and one that is not like. You know, honestly, I I feel like somebody like. uh, who played Umbridge? Um, Vera Drake. <laughs> what is her name? That's it's Imelda Staunton. Um, I was like, it's like Vera Drake. That's oh wait, no, never mind. Um, I th- I wouldn't be surprised if Imelda Staunton like looked at Louise Fletcher and said like, oh yeah, okay. Somehow, if the more nice I am, the more evil I could appear. I don't have to be like you know foaming at the mouth or anything like that and so it's a great performance and one that the fact that he allows her yes she's not we know that we don't sympathize with her but i think we might recognize ourselves in her a lot more and the fact that he allowed that to happen i think shows a great deal of restraint on his part yeah that's a good that's a good point um uh still like i said i think we'll get into 
uh, with a couple of these later movies, him identifying with the McMurphy character. I think he strips that much. I think he strips that kind of thing away. Yeah. After a while. Um, but, uh, the next movie is, well, speaking of him, like I was, you were, you were talking about him, um, making changes to the source material. The next movie is the musical hair. Mm hmm. Uh, which I've never now, seen this the stage. long and beautiful hair. Uh, yeah, I've okay. never seen the stage version, but apparently um, this retains the songs and the characters. But as far as like who's the lead and what actually happens, it's apparently hmm. completely everything's changed around from what I understand. Hmm. Um, hair is a delightful movie to watch. Okay. It's also I was going to say it's so much of its time, but I also realized like it's 1979. It's actually. 10 years late. Yeah. Like I would love to go back and see like, how did, how did people who had been like hippies? Cause it takes place in the sixties. It takes mm-hmm. place in the late sixties. Um, which is, I guess when the musical was written, um, and how did like hippies or whoever actually think of hair when it came out as a movie in 1979? Right. You know, well after all of this, uh, is the film mocking of hippies? Uh, no, no, no. Okay. The opposite okay. is very pro hippie. Okay. Um, uh, it, it's about a, um, uh, 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 if anything, I could see like these hippies that are now in their thirties would look at him and be like, come on, man, move on. <laughs> we did. Uh, John Savage is the actor who plays oh, the, yeah. the lead. He's a, he's an Okie, um, <laughs> who's come to New York city because he's, shipping out mm-hmm. to basic training. Uh, and he's coming, he's got a couple days early and he meets up with, uh, uh, treat Williams and his band of hippies. And they spend 72 hours just, uh, doing drugs and fucking around and obviously singing songs and mm-hmm. they crash, uh, uh, Beverly D'Angelo's, uh, um, not her wedding, but her like sister's wedding or okay. something, uh, at the, at a fancy estate. And then John Savage falls in love with Beverly D'Angelo. And then, uh, uh, I won't give away the twist, the twist ending, um, which apparently is different from the musical. Um, yeah, it's a delight to watch. I think we, we haven't talked much. I guess we kind of got into it with the fireman's ball, uh, but we haven't really talked about just how in the moment, uh, he, the Milos Forman t- tends to be as a filmmaker mm-hmm. that he's not, he's not necessarily resting on, uh, established technique. He's kind of doing, he seems to be doing with the camera, with the editing, whatever, the, whatever is happening in front of the camera calls for, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? And, and so, uh, his movies tend to be very, uh, enveloping and, and, and yeah. they tend to wrap you up. And so when there's a party or a musical in this case, uh, or both in this case, uh, he can, he can really get into that, uh, get you into that vibe. Yeah. Um, by, by not being, and that's part of his anti-institutional thing maybe is by not resting on, uh, on, on the tradition or convention, uh, he, he seems to be a, um, not improvisational there, maybe some of that, right. uh, but an instinctive filmmaker yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. And you know, a moment ago when you said resting on, I thought you were going to say his laurels, which fits in with something that I was thinking, like he came off of an Oscar win and not just for himself, uh-huh. like a huge embrace of his film, one flew of the cuckoo's nest. And there are some actors and some directors who, uh, when they win their Oscar, it's like, all right, time to be serious. And uh-huh. it would appear that is not what he wanted to do. Yeah. Although uh, I wonder how it was seen because this was a very, 
this might have been seen as a prestigious movie because it was a very successful musical. I guess you know so. what I mean. And so making oh, it's finally the musical the movie adaptation of Hair probably seemed like a prestigious move. But maybe it's even more speaking to his nature that he doesn't treat it like that. True. He's yes. making another another yeah. Loves of the Blonde Fireman's Ball type of art movie, which is with a huge budget and choreography yeah. and all kinds of fun stuff happening all the time. Like I guess having not been around at that time, I don't know. Of course I knew the I would know about the success of hair, the, the stage musical, but I don't know how it was viewed. I mean, stuff like cabaret. Yes, there's a real vibrance to it and all that, but we're dealing with world war two. We're dealing with Nazis and all that sort of thing. Whereas this is just, yes, it's a successful thing, but it's also just dealing with a bunch of hippies. <laughs> and so maybe it was taken less serious. I, it's hard to know, but, uh, yeah, but yeah, but either way, uh, it's an interesting choice, uh, for him. Yeah. Um, then there's ragtime, which I don't know if I mentioned, but I haven't seen, mm-hmm. uh, then there's Amadeus, which we've both seen. Yeah. Uh, and that's another one that, I mean, this one definitely has the, all, all the outward appearance of a, prestige yes. movie. But if you look at, um, Tom Hulse, is that his Tom name? Hulse, yeah. Tom Hulse's performance. He's not doing the, uh, you know, prestige movie performance. He's, yeah. uh, Milo sort of set him free. Uh, and, and, and he's acting like a Randall McMurphy mm. <laughs> type, uh, you know, um, and then you've got, and this speaks to the color thing as well, because of course they chose to give Mozart a, and maybe he wore a pink wig at the time, uh-huh. but if that, if that is true, I can imagine Foreman starting there and working outwards and just being like, Oh wait, you mean to tell me that Mozart wore a, a pink wig and everyone else just wore a, like a color, like gray or white or something like that. Okay. Do we have any scripts <laughs> about Mozart? Oh, there's a successful play. Okay. We're going to do that. Um, but yeah, like, and, and, the reason I bring it up is to talk about like the way he uses color as a way of differentiating. And that's a very obvious, maybe even too obvious one, but it also, one of the things that is so great about Amadeus is that not unlike Mozart himself is that it seems like such a boring prestige picture. Uh It seems like, don't get me wrong, I love Man for All Seasons. I'm a big fan of Chariots of Fire, which came out a few years before that. Gandhi came out in 1982. Like, Gandhi's not that great. But no, yeah. well, I just and I've never seen Chariots of Fire. It's very but good. Yeah, Man for All Seasons is great. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Gandhi isn't that. Yeah, I don't necessarily love Gandhi, but like these movies that, have, that are winning Best Picture and all that, and there is definitely a certain tone to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's usually a not necessarily sluggish, but certainly a serious tone. Um, mannered, mannered, and I guess you could say that Amadeus is mannered, but in a different direction. <laughs> um, but he took you know this time of powdered wigs, and it's not merely that the character of Mozart is outlandish. The the structure of the film, the way the film is cut together, it just, it feels so vibrant. Mm-hmm. It just feels so necessary in that moment. And, you know, we're talking about the 1980s where from a musical standpoint, of course, you've got punk and new wave and all of that. And you have this thing about a classical composer and he still managed to make it seem like this really, punk movie not just because of the character like the larger tone of the entire film whether it be I think a, a 
an astonishing performance by F. Murray Abraham, but then also characters like Jeffrey Jones. Like, you have just, like, the the tone of the Mozart character just kind of soaks into the rest of the film. It's not like it's a straightforward movie with this one point of mm-hmm. uh, of oddity. It all becomes that. And it's, so it's, it's a very strange and very... Every, nothing about it is what you would expect it to be. Yeah, uh, and I'll... Uh I was going to actually mention Jeffrey Jones because the, this idea of casting a comedic character actor, a character yeah. actor known for comedy, yeah. uh, as the as Joseph II, as the emperor, yeah. um, again speaks to his disrespect for institutions, yes. uh, and will be echoed in a movie we'll be talking about in a in a little bit, yeah. Uh, okay, so neither of us has seen Valmont then. I know that's supposed to be a big one, right? Yeah. Um, also, not not very widely available. Uh, so people versus Larry Flint. We've talked about it. This is the first one I saw and probably it's probably my least favorite of his movies. That's weird. I remember you liking it for a long time, I but, I guess, I, but I guess I know I've known you for a long time. Yeah. You've known me since yeah. I was 17. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. 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 That's about, yeah. Wait, when did we meet? 99. You might've known me since I was 16 then. Okay. Yeah. I turned I, 17 late in 99. Yeah, that's true. So yeah. Wow. More than half our lives, David. Isn't yeah. that fun? Crazy. It's great. I love it. Wow. All right. Uh, so, yeah, I probably did like People vs. Later when I was younger. And there are still a lot of things I like about it. Um, I think, you know, for however I feel about her, you know, public persona, I like Courtney Love. Yeah. Um, what is her public persona at this point? At this point, I know more... I know more about her based on stand-up material than I do her. Oh, okay. I, I don't know. She's... um. I mean, she still seems like sometimes she'll like really have it together and have like strong political opinions. And mm-hmm. then sometimes she's getting drunk and making a scene in an airplane. Sure. Uh, I don't know. She's uh, unpredictable, mm-hmm. but I guess that's why we like her. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to the extent that we do. Uh, but I like a lot of whole music. Okay. Um, and I've often found it kind of uh, insulting that she had this, you know, l- there were, implications that live through this was like mostly written by Kurt Cobain and then that mm. celebrity skin was mostly written by Billy Corgan. And that's, I, I feel like there's some maybe sexism at work there that people keep right. trying to credit her work to yeah. the men in her life. But uh, I think if you're that cons- consistently putting out good yeah. material, obviously you've got something going on. Right. So I'm a fan of whole, I'm a fan of Courtney Love as an actress. I don't know that I'd want to spend more than a few minutes in a room with her. <laughs> right. Um, you're like, wait, is yeah. she in, is she in character? No. All right. I think we're good. Uh, all right, but yeah, People versus Larry Flint. Um, I, I think this is where we get into like I, I just I have such a hard time seeing Larry Flint as a as a hero, and I right. think and I think Milos Forman does a little too much. It's tough because you and I, being who we are, I would say he is a hero to us, not as far as his attitudes. And probably not even because of his philosophies, but maybe that a little bit. And that, like, he's a free speech hero. Like, I'm, I'm willing to, in the fact that, yeah, like, yeah. he's fighting for something that, yes, I find, uh, I think is not a good thing and, and very exploitative and all that. But I think that his is a uniquely American story. And that doesn't necessarily mean that the movie is that good, but I can definitely understand the appeal of wanting to tell that story. And I do think that the, for lack of a better term, stroke of genius of People vs. Larry Flint is Edward Norton. And hmm. his character, like the way he's written, the way he's, um, the way he's played, that 
you know, he is by far, he is our entry point into the film. Like, regardless of it being, of Larry Flint, you know, played, I think, very well by Woody Harrelson, regardless of him being the ostensible lead, our entry point is Edward Norton. And it's worth noting that this is an instance where the institution, because he's a lawyer, the institution in many ways is against Larry Flint, but somebody within the institution is there is right there with him. And I feel like it's it might be... And it's... Okay, hang on now. What I was saying earlier about a common theme is the eventual oppression of the free spirit or they just flame out. And this one being the exception, it might have something to do with the fact that he's able to make friends with the institution. At least, some, okay. at least a representative of it. And yeah. so he's still around, yes, diminished, but he does have some level of victory. I wonder if that triumph is maybe why I get... Uh, again, you've probably seen it more recently than I have. It's been a while. You can maybe speak to the aesthetics of it, but a part of me feels like Milos Forman fell victim to some of the great man biopic tropes that he avoided in Amadeus. Yes. In People vs. Larry Flint. Uh, yes, I think he probably uh, did. Um, I think pro- uh, probably because we're talking about larger things. Like Amadeus, obviously a wonderful artist. Um and people were trying to stop him, but it was all professional stuff. Whereas Larry Flint, we're dealing with actual law and that sort of thing. And so the idea of him being this, this fighter, um, might have, it might've allowed, uh, Foreman to buy into, he is a great man. Look at what he did. Uh, like, and it's fairly recent. And so, you know, McMurphy, when it comes right down to it is a fictional character, uh, whereas Larry Flint was a real guy who was actually shot and yet still mm-hmm. persisted in this thing and succeeded. And so I think, uh, while I do think that the film doesn't really explore Larry Flint enough, which is something that we'll get into with man on the moon. Uh, I can, ne- I can definitely understand why somebody like Foreman would allow himself to get caught up mm-hmm. in that image. So let's get into Man on the Moon. Okay. Uh, What did you have to say about that? Um, It's a movie that I really loved at the time. I think everybody who loves comedy and is young uh, has an Andy Kaufman phase where you think he's like amazing. And I think intellectually, I think he's pretty great. I could also see him being tiresome uh-huh. uh to know i still think some of that stuff's really fun some of it's like the great. uh the mighty mouse thing is just so fun yeah and and i like his version of trolling which is like all right we're reading all of the great gatsby <laughs> go fuck yourself <laughs> you know it's uh th- there are things that i think are brilliant and just a lot of fun and he's really in a lot of ways not that different than like steve martin's stage persona mm-hmm. um which is he's gonna do what he's gonna do there could be 7,000 people in the audience. There could be nobody. And he's going to do the same show. And so I think there's a lot to respect about Andy Kaufman. But one of the, one of the common things about him is that he was a bit unknowable. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's, it's arguable how... So when I saw the film in, in 99, I really enjoyed it. But I certainly didn't feel like I got to know the character that much. Um which is it may not be a flaw. I think that's probably by design, um, but it might not make for the most fulfilling 
aspect and it requires you to be because if you can't know him you're not going to be able to feel much for him so the only sympathy you're going to have for him is going to have to be intellectual you're going to have to have an intellectual uh appreciation for what he's doing which is is going to be sympathy with Courtney Love and Danny DeVito's sure. characters, sure. I think. Or Paul Giamatti a little bit, yeah. But uh, he's still kind of a conspirator. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry, I cut you off. Do you have more to say there? Just that I, I think that... Yeah, I... Um, hmm. I, I wonder if Milos Forman's, like, his real strengths come from the peripheral characters. Not to imply that Salieri is peripheral. He's a co-lead. But we definitely relate to him. We may not want to, but we relate to him more than we relate to Mozart. Mozart's a genius, and we can just look at his behavior and be like, well, I don't behave like that, and most people I know don't. Like, this guy must be brilliant. And so, you know, if you look at Edward Norton, F. Mary Abraham, and then, like, these various characters, the, the three or four supporting characters in Man on the Moon, I think they play a very vital role because they, they are our entry point. And we take our cues from them. And I think they sympathize with Andy because they're friends with him. But I do think that this film, maybe more than any of the others, the character just does not explain himself. And we see that he is kind of a burden on the people that know him Mm -hmm. and eventually starts to become a burden to us. And I have no mo- emotional connection to him, so that's kind of how he stays. I can appreciate his bits and his his larger philosophy of comedy, and I do respect it. But I don't think, in retrospect, it makes for a very fulfilling movie. Yeah, maybe I'll have to watch it again. I remember liking it a lot. I think I just part of it. Part of me just likes the the. Um, uh, I guess should be considered um, structuralism in the sense that it's a. Uh, movie about someone who had a prankish sure. uh, way of, uh, you know, uh, approach to his own art and then mm-hmm. being prankish itself and like having, um, characters play themselves and then having Danny DeVito, Danny DeVito play a character and then also playing Danny DeVito mm-hmm. in the taxi stuff. Yeah. Like, uh, stuff like that I think is, is, is really, um, really fun. You've also got the wrestler playing himself. I forget his name now. Jerry Lawler. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Although the other, uh, the other side of it though is no, I now having seen that documentary that came out last year, right? Uh, and it driving me crazy. I now can't divorce my my feelings about that because you talked about Andy Kaufman being a no no unknowable, yeah. and my impression of that documentary, which I'm not forgetting the name of, Jim and Andy is what it was mm-hmm. called, is that Jim Carrey thought he had Andy Kaufman figured out, and maybe that's part of the problem. Yeah, uh, there. But yeah. um, I remember liking the movie a lot. Yeah, I mean, I really liked it at the time, and in seeing, and I haven't seen it in a long time, and I might have a different appreciation for it now. Um, but I definitely think of the movies, including Larry Flynn, of the four of his movies that I've seen, it is probably my least favorite. Okay. Uh, well, let's close things out with his last, uh, I guess, feature film or his last U.S. theatrical release, 2006's Goya's Ghosts. Mm-hmm. Did you see, you haven't, obviously haven't I seen it. I did not see it. Uh, so I only watched it uh, very recently. Um, and this is um, a story that takes place over decades. Um, Stellan Skarsgård plays uh, Goya, the painter. Mm-hmm. Um, and it takes place sort of at the end of the Spanish Inquisition and then the Spanish being conquered by uh, 
I don't know, whoever, the, I can't remember now who conquered this, the French, maybe? Um, That's one of those. <laughs> conquered them. Um, and then it's sort of going back. So it takes place over decades. Um, Javier Bardem um, plays a, uh, uh, a priest in the Spanish Catholic Church. And then um, Natalie Portman plays the daughter of a wealthy merchant who is sort of Goya's muse. Mm-hmm. In a way. Uh, and this one, in some ways, has a lot in common with the things that we've talked about. Uh, in terms of his not respecting institutions, but I think Goya's Ghost, which is not a very well, I looked at Rotten Tomatoes, apparently not a very well-received movie, no, but I think it's actually way better than people give her credit for, hmm. it, but it's an incredibly angry movie, I think. I, I don't think you can like be like, oh, he's in the Catholic Church, ridiculous, and then show them actually torturing people and it not right. be bitter. Yeah. You know what I mean? And there are like, there are a couple scenes of like full on torture, hmm. um, uh, in this, uh, and, but you've also like, Oh, so here's a great example of the, I talked about, uh, I can't remember if it's the, I think it's the French, um, who conquered them. I talked about the conquering, Speaking of the dark sense of humor, there's a part where you've got this French general addressing his troops before they're going to storm the city, and he's talking about how these people have lived, have the 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 the, the common folk here have suffered under the the church. You will be welcomed with flowers, and you'll be welcomed as liberators. And it's a smash cut to the French soldiers just raping and pillaging <laughs> and torturing yeah. and killing townsfolk. It's like it's very upsetting, but also it's very darkly funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and that's sort of the tone of this. The other thing I wanted to bring up uh, that I, I said I mentioned when I mentioned Jeffrey Jones playing the emperor. Yeah, here, I was noticing got, who plays the king, uh, King yeah, Carlos got, the Fourth. <laughs> you've got Randy Quaid yeah. as the king, and I watched it and I realized like Randy Quaid has speaking of public persona, like Randy Quaid has become yeah um, so mockable and, uh, and to the point of almost like I feel sorry for him, like he's clearly like I not well. Feel like something is wrong um, with him now. Yes, but I feel like we overlooked that he's really talented in the right role, like in Brokeback Mountain. Absolutely. And in this, they're yeah. really good. And here, his, he's only in the first part, the pre-conquering mm-hmm. part, but um, uh, Goya has been hired to um, um, to to paint a portrait of the, of the queen, mm-hmm. Carlos's wife, uh, who is, I guess, generally understood to be homely. Okay. And Goya paints her as she is because he thinks she's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And so there's a very like tense scene between Goya and King Carlos of him being like Carlos being like, understand, like I understand what you see and what, but you have to understand why I need this sort of public representation of my wife to be something traditionally beautiful. But that's all under the surface. What I'm saying It's a really, really great scene. That sounds really good. Um, this has a great cast. I mean, as I was looking about, as I was looking at it, I realized like, yeah, it doesn't seem to be very well regarded, but you know, it's Milos Foreman. And, and I looked at like the, just the very quick one sentence IMDb thing, like painter, painter Francisco Goya faces a scandal involving his muse. I was like, Oh, okay. Interesting. It says who is labeled a heretic as by a monk. I was like, there's the Milos Foreman. I know. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Um, but also, uh, looking at, that cast and then also Michael Lonsdale as Inquisitor General. I was like, Oh, oh. <laughs> I don't well, know who Michael Lonsdale is, but I know who that's he was in Munich. Okay. He was uh Matthew Amalric's like father. Oh, uh, right. he just yeah. he just you know exudes authority and benevolent menace if such a thing exists. Oh, that's a there's a perfect example of this yeah. in in which Javier Bardem's character because she's labeled a heretic, he sort of appeals to 
basically her father, the merchant, mm-hmm. donates a huge sum of money to the Catholic Church and has asked, asked Javier Bardem, like, bring this to the Inquisitor General, give him an appeal for my daughter's release. And the scene in which the Inquisitor General is, like, basically saying, like, yeah, we'll take the money. We're not letting his daughter go. But yeah. in that very, that, that way yeah. that you've just described. Uh, perfect. Yeah, it's a, not not a bad movie at all. Um, so we talked about Tom Hulse being let loose. Natalie Portman has no leash on her in her performance okay. uh, because she, you know, like I said, it takes place over decades. So there's a long time jump where she's been tortured in a cell for decades, Ugh. and so her she is not exactly the same person when we sure. see her again after sure. that time jump. And uh, yeah, she's not holding back. Um, and I wonder if some people had a problem with her performance just being so, uh, I think, um, much in the, in the way that Goya's paintings often could be Mm. grotesque, but I don't think it's bad grotesque. I think it's very intentional. Uh, if, if that is caused by other people and caused by abuse, then yeah, yeah, like then the more grotesque her performance, the bigger the commentary on the people committing the crime. Yeah. So if nothing else, let this profile episode be uh, uh, a, uh, an argument in favor of Goya's ghosts. Okay. People should uh, give it a second chance. Uh, we've reached the end. Do we? I mean, we seem like we addressed most of the things we yeah, wanted to address. It's interesting, you know. Uh, I reckon I, I don't like to boil things solely down to Oscars, but it's always interesting to to look at Oscar history and realize, like, you know, Milos Forman is a two time Best Director winner with his movies winning best picture and being very well regarded. Um, and yet he's not a director that I hear people talk about very often. I certainly don't. When people talk about like autourism, I don't hear them talk very much about him, even though as we've established, he certainly is that, um, Mm -hmm. with the stories he tells and the way he tells them. Um, but I do wonder if, if a lot of this is a victim of, if he's just kind of a victim of low output, I feel like if he put out, let's say, four more movies between 1980 and now, even three, I feel like people would have paid more attention to him, even though his films, you know, Oscar nominations, Oscar wins, very well-respected cast, fairly high-profile films, um, but he's just a director that I think is... And I don't say this as a function of him. I'm not saying like, hey, you should have gotten back to work. Not that, but I do think that he's going to be forgotten over over time. And I think that is a shame. I think he's, to me, he's somebody like Robert Wise, who I guess probably is more of a journeyman. But people will remember his movies, Uh but they're not necessarily going to remember, or Michael Curtiz in that same way. They'll remember the movies, they might okay. not immediately think of the guy that directed them. Okay. And when you say people here, you're not talking about people like us who obviously know about Michael Curtis sure, and, sure. and Robert Wise. Yeah. Uh, you're talking about the sort of casual cinephiles. Yes. Like the, who a, might not a step realize above that, a step that, above the normies, but not quite the nerds like us. So people who might not realize immediately that one flew the cuckoo's nest and man on the moon were directed by the same person. Sure. Yeah, sure. But they know both the movies. Okay. Yeah. That mm. might be what happens, but this is battleship pretension is now officially a Milos Forman fan podcast. So, uh, all right. I, <laughs> I, I was we'll wondering when we were going to pivot to something else, <laughs> but all right. So you can find us at battleship pretension.com. Uh, that's where you can find all sorts of stuff, including, uh, this week we've got, uh, reviews for me, of the first purge ant-man and the wasp and sorry to bother you um in the movie the first purge 
do they, as they do in the trailer, do they refer to it as the first purge? They never say the first purge. Oh, thank God. They call it, yeah, because in the, in the movie, it's, um, it's um, referred to officially as the experiment. It's the 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 people who start calling it purging and calling it the purge and then so in the in the prologue is the first time you actually hear the the uh you know the new ruling party of the of the this alternate united states uh refer to it as a purge because yeah no yeah that's an editing thing in the trailer i assumed it was because like maybe they want to try and differentiate between the 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 first first film yeah the purge yeah uh, and this but i remember in the trailer i i was talking about it with you that in the trailer it's it's like uh you know participate in the first purge and just like wow you're really assuming this is gonna go well <laughs> going you know? on. no yeah um yeah no they, they don't call it that it's okay. uh, i like i'm you know i'm in uh i'm all in for this you sure franchise are. this is probably still my third favorite of the four okay but that's not saying there's only oh, the first one is the only one that i don't really like i like two mm-hmm. three and four in that order uh but uh yeah i liked it i liked Ant-Man and the wasp we talked about the movie journal more than you did yeah um sorry to bother you i liked um it's i don't know that it's necessarily it might be less than the sum of its parts in some in some ways mm-hmm. uh it, it it's has so many plot turns that it feels like it's about three and a half hours long mm. um because it be, keeps becoming a different movie yeah um which was a fun experience also it might have been the fact that i watched it at eight thirty in the morning after getting very little sleep at sundance <laughs> maybe that's why it felt so long to me i feel like that's the ideal <laughs> situation um so yeah that's all at, at, at battleship retention um you can email us at david at battleship retention or tyler at battleship retention i'm on twitter at davy pretension tyler's on twitter at tyler pretension you've got another podcast called more than one lesson i do and uh we've started a new uh mini-sode series we are putting uh the best of pictures on hold uh for a while because i host that with josh long and he's got a lot of work going on right now so that is on hold but i wanted to continue putting out uh, uh mini-sodes and so we started a new series about the listener generated more than one lesson top 50 movies list so every every minisode is going to be about Mm. one of those and we're starting at number 50 uh, and that is this week uh, we talk about rob reiner's the princess bride Uh, so i talk about that with reed and it's uh it's a film that as you know i've always really liked whereas other people loved it but i think as, i'm in the love it car- yeah. category but as reed and i talked about it i found myself instinctively wanting to rewatch it uh because and and that's something that happens a lot any really anytime anybody talks about it for any length of time i find myself wanting to rewatch it so i feel like that probably could qualify as love i think it's a movie that i love great well uh thanks for listening we'll get you next time This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 